The following talk was recorded at Label the Planet 2021 Empowering Users, the annual conference on current issues in ethics, social justice and technology from the Free Software Foundation. Label the Planet is a live conference and speakers often use slides and other visual tools to assist their presentation. You can see the videos of these talks at media.libreplanet.org or on the FSF Peertube channel. Label Planet speakers do not represent the mission of the Free Software Foundation. We host speakers talking about their use of free software in different kinds of political and commercial work. The FSF supports their freedom, but does not take positions on any political issues other than those necessary to uphold the principles of free software. Like all the FSF's work on behalf of the grievance of all computer users, Nemo Planet is made possible by thousands of individuals. To keep our work going, please consider becoming an associate member via my.fsf.org join or making a donation at my.fsf.org donate. You can stay informed by subscribing to our newsletter, The Free Software Supporter, at fsf.org fss and for more information on LibrePlanet, you can visit libreplanet.org conference. Unmuted. Okay, cool. We're now muted. Cool. So, welcome um, to this presentation, um, Adopting Free Software Ideas by Mike Gervitz. A short bio. Mike is a user freedom activist with a focus on user privacy and security, an assistance on GNU Essence and the GNU project, and a member of the GNU Advisory Committee. He writes free software and uses exclusively free software in his day-to-day -day computing. Mike is a software engineer by profession, but a hacker at heart. Mike, the floor is yours. Thank you. Thanks, Chris. Um, hello, everyone, uh, and, and thank you for uh, to, to the FSF for having me back again this year. Um, well, I am coming to you as as an activist today, and in this talk, will you know hopefully provide some advice to others like me. I'm also a, a author and a user of free software, and and I'd say a user foremost, since that's what I do each and every day. Which use free software. <clears throat> but it took me a long time to get where I am today. And it, it was not easy. Us activists, you know, try to put on a straight face and, and paint a positive picture of everything and neglect inconvenient truths. And by not admitting to our own faults, we risk setting unattainable standards that might drive others away from our movement. And that's really what this talk is about, some of those hard problems of software freedom, the process of adopting and, and incorporating those ideals into your own life, ascribing them meaning and identity within the context of everything else that's important to you, and then maybe even advocating for them too. So first, what, what ideals am I talking about? I, I won't go over the four freedoms, but within the context of free software, that's what we're talking about, the freedoms to run, study, modify, and share your software. And we repeat this again and again, but what really are we talking about fundamentally? And it's as simple as we reject being controlled by those who write software. We believe that everyone should be free to do their own computing how they please, not how somebody else pleases. For a lot of people, though, this, this isn't an easy concept to grasp. I mean, if we think about um, the devices users most often use, which, which is a, a phone, uh, they're like these magical black boxes. You know, they, they, don't, they can't reason about how, how the apps run, how the underlying operating system runs, uh, that there is even such a thing as an operating system. And part of that is a, a lack of computer literacy in, in our cultures. 
uh, which is not the subject of this talk, uh, but, but would certainly help. Um, but, you know, quickly, what, you know, what is an app? An app is a program. A program is a sequence of instructions written by a human, at least you know, for now. Um, so someone else is instructing your device what to do. And since computers and devices are effectively extensions of, of us, you know, they determine what we can and cannot do, how we can and cannot act, and what we can and cannot see. I want to tell you a little story. Um, I was talking to my wife a few weeks ago, preparing for this talk, and uh, she cut me off. And I thought maybe she wasn't interested in what I had to say. But as it turns out, she had something uh, pretty, um, uh, well, it, it stuck with me. She's, so she's a nurse. She, she works uh, at a hospital. Uh, partly dealing with COVID-19 patients. So I, I also want to take a moment to uh, express my gratitude to all the healthcare workers that are really holding the fabric of our society together during this pandemic. And she was talking to her coworkers about some of the computing we do here. Uh, you know, for example, my, my kids running, uh, really enjoy playing Mind Test, which is a, a free replacement for a you know, popular game of a similar name. Uh, and one of her aides uh, came by and asked if, if we used what he called Linux, which we prefer to call GNU and Linux. Um, and my wife up to this point hadn't used the term free software. Yet he said, I love the concept of free software. And that really stuck with me. And it's a really powerful message. You know, let, let, me, let me explain why. I've, you know, I've been programming professionally for about 12, 13 years. And in that time with all the coworkers I've had, uh, with the dozens of interviews that I have given, I haven't heard such a forward, such a strong message from, from people within my own circle. Uh, and these are people who are, are usually aware of open source, but not necessarily software freedom. Yet this non-technical person, and I say that because he then went to describe how uh, his device came with Chrome installed and he wasn't sure how to uninstall it he's already internalized this concept. And this stuck with me because this is one of the hardest parts of my activism, trying to figure out how to get people to care about free software. And, and he's already done that. Now, it, it was also very interesting to me how it seems that my activism was more effective in this case through my wife's inadvertent advocacy. And why is that? So part of it is because you know, she was there and I wasn't. So certainly the more people that we can have advocating on our behalf, the fewer places we have to be. But there's something a little more fundamental than that. So since we're on the topic of healthcare, we can compare it to perhaps vaccine hesitancy. So for whatever reason, whether it be legitimate concerns or misinformation, certain people don't want to get a COVID-19 vaccine, at least here within the US. And how do you go about combating something like that? Well, um, it, it's not going to be coming from the you know, government entities that people distrust. It comes, it's going to have to come from people within their community, their community leaders, their friends, their family, the people who understand their concerns and, and can address them more intimately and, and, and speak to them and set a good example. Me, as an activist, it's very difficult for me to relate to how certain people do their computing. So my wife can, can bond and, have, and culturally um, have, have conversations with, with the people she works with and relate to them. Me, 
I mean, let me let me tell you what I'm streaming on right now. It's it's a, an old X200 ThinkPad, which is about a decade old. It's running LibreGroup, so you know, free from the BIOS up. I'm running uh, GNU Geek system, which is a, a free GNU Linux distribution. Uh, I use a tiling window manager most of the time, just a full screen terminal. I'm SSH'd into a box uh, in my basement where I do most of my work. And um, my phone that is is running Replicant. It's a Galaxy S3, which is also about uh, a, a decade old. It's run um, the front facing camera drivers do not work. The rear facing camera barely works. Uh, can't take video, can't, can't watch video. The wireless drivers don't work. GPS doesn't work. This is not a practical device for your average user. It's just something I chose because of how much I value my, my freedom. Um, and then, you know, when it comes to the web, for, I don't allow any JavaScript to run, which severely limits the, the sites that I can interact with. But even so, by privilege of my knowledge as, as a web developer over the past 15 years or so, I'm still able to do more than your average user would be able to. I, how I do my computing is entirely unrelatable. I lament that I cannot recommend my practices, how I've attained my freedom, to others. So another, another thing to note is my wife, even though she was effective in her advocacy, she doesn't even use free software herself. She's aware of the concepts. Uh, after all, she, she lives with me and, and I'm an activist. She doesn't like how people have control over her computing, but it's not enough to change how she does her computing. And she doesn't like change. So I, I, I made an analogy that, that she likes, which is, you know, and, and to be clear, this is a, this is something completely unrelated to, to the concept of software freedom. But my wife and I, for years, have wanted to explore you know, being vegetarian or, or vegan, just for, for ethical reasons. Um, but we haven't done so. So if we were to be approached by a, say, vegan activist, they wouldn't be effective because we already agree. We already understand. We already think it's important. Why haven't we changed then? because it's hard to change something you've been doing for the past 30 years. And I know that sounds like an excuse, but that is the, that is the reality. And that's how my wife thinks about software freedom. So <clears throat> when you're familiar with software freedom for a long time, like, like I have been, uh, it's easy to forget where you've come from. So I, I think about this a lot as a, as a professional too. Because as we're you know onboarding new people, it's I, I lack that beginner perspective anymore. I, I miss certain obvious things. I've become myopic. So from to get to get from A to Z in the context of software freedom, it, it's a process. It's a journey. It takes a lot of effort. And in the case of software freedom, uh, completely changing how, how one does their computing, how one lives their life. It, it doesn't just happen. Further, we're we're always evolving. So. I used LibreBoot as an example. A free BIOS didn't used to be possible, and now it is. That goal has shifted. So I didn't start with free software. Uh, when, I, when I was a kid, um, I grew up with Windows. So I started programming about 20 years ago now using a proprietary language, Microsoft Visual Basic 6. And as a kid, I did what kids do best, which is mimic. I I sought to follow the examples of the world that was around me. So that included license keys and, and quotas and directing the user in ways that I wanted the user to act. 
I don't have time to go into my whole life story, so I'm going to skip ahead to when I first discovered the concept of software freedom. So at some point, the laptop I was using started having hard drive issues. And for those who don't know, hard drives are these spinning metal platters in an enclosure. It started making a grinding noise, which is very bad. So while I waited for a replacement, I wanted to continue using my laptop. And I found that GNU and Linux distros, which I simply knew as, as Linux at the time, I, I wasn't yet aware of GNU, um, have bootable live CDs. So you put in the CD and it runs out of memory without needing a hard drive at all. And that alone kind of blew me away. But as I got into it more, I was also fascinated by the level of customization uh, that I could perform in the OS. I think it was uh, KDE that, that I was using at the time. And it came with, uh, as operating systems usually do, a number of games. And one of the games I really liked was called Frozen Bubble. Now, part of what happened next maybe may have been a little bit of luck, but I was digging into the uh, file system a bit, and I found where on disk, or in, in memory, again, my disk was broken, um, Frozen Bubble was. Now, most programs are, not necessarily most, but a lot are compiled, so they're, they, they produce machine code that the computer then runs. So if you open it in, say, a text editor, you're going to get what you know kind of looks like garbage. But this was different. When I opened Frozen Bubble, I got source code, not minified or obfuscated source code. No, source code that looked like it was intended for a human to modify it. Now, I wasn't familiar with the language at the time, which is Perl, but I was, I was blown away. Uh, I mean, I came from Windows, where you, you did not get that. You got games. You didn't get the source code to them. So I, I was curious if maybe I was mistaken in something. So I modified the file. And again, I didn't know Perl, so I made some trivial change, maybe a text change. And I restarted the game. And sure enough, there, there was my change. And I was, uh, I was floored. I was uh, really excited. Um, but I wanted to know more. Why? Why? Is this something the developer intended? Did I, you know, kind of just, uh, you know, work around the system? Or so I, I scrolled to the top of the file, and, and there was a copyright notice there, and it said something very different than what I was used to, which is I had permission to modify and distribute the software, and the license was the GNU General Public License version two, and it said it was published by the Free Software Foundation. So I knew I had the technical means to modify the software, but now I was given permission to. And that, that was empowering. So while my memory is a little blurry on the details after that, uh, that was the beginning of, of my looking into the GNU project and the Free Software Foundation and the philosophy behind software freedom. I had a lot of unlearning to do for myself at this point because I, I had been you know, indoctrinated in, in Windows and in Visual Studio and so on, and I didn't have anyone to guide me. I did have now the FSF in, in GNU to serve as a beacon of light, uh, as an anchor, or uh, as a lighthouse, as, as Snowden put it in his keynote. Uh, it gave me something to work toward, to, to constantly improve upon, but it didn't give me advice that was practical at the time. Now, that word, practical, uh, is probably setting off alarm bells for certain people in the free software community. So uh, let me explain, because people often say that free software is not practical. Not just our opponents, though, but also people who want to actually use free software. Now, we counter saying we've done it. I mentioned I have here. 
the, the FSF is carrying out an entire conference with entirely free software. We're doing it now as, as I speak. Clearly, it, it, it works. But we have to be careful. Are we, what, what's our goal? Are we trying to help? Are we being defensive when we say uh, we, we've done it? Are we bragging? We have to be careful not to dismiss users' legitimate concerns. So I just mentioned how my computing today is not relatable. What I consider to be practical for myself is absolutely not practical, not practical for someone without the requisite understanding. So imagine me 15 years ago when I was first discovering this, someone telling me they're already there. No, it, it is practical, I've done it. Okay, good for you, I, I know the goal, but help me get where you are, don't, don't just dismiss me. So we have to be practical about what we consider to be practical for other people, uh, especially those less experienced than us or less technical than us. And I want you to keep that concept in mind because we're gonna continue to explore it as, as we move on. I also want to pause for a moment and talk about uh, the license. So we touched on a uh, frozen bubble specifically. So we touched on the ideals of software freedom previously, but how's that actually enforced? So software is covered by copyright law. Copyright grants a rather long monopoly uh, or the ability to make copies, which also includes derivative works. So by default, software is non-free, it's proprietary. To grant users back the freedoms that we believe they ought to have, Richard Stallman turned copyright on its head with the concept of copyleft. I don't think the term originated with him, but uh, this, uh, this philosophy is really what's embodied within the GPL, the General Public License, and now other licenses as well. Now, some developers write free software for just technical reasons, and that's really the focus of open source. But other people write it for philosophical reasons, and some write it as a form of advocacy or as a form of activism. So what happened here with Frozen Bubble? Well, th this, is, th this is what led me to discover software freedom, the license, the, this, this game. And I can't say what the intentions of the developers were, but that's what happened. So those of you who do write software may never know how much of an impact you're actually having on something that seems as simple as, as a license choice. And that's why the choice of license is so important. Choosing the GPL isn't just about ensuring that your software remains free. It's also about making a statement about advocating for the principles and ideals of software freedom. There's another aspect before I move on from Frozen Bubble that I wanna emphasize. So when, when I discovered that the software was free, I also wanted to test that. What are the practical benefits of it being free? What, what can I actually do with it? And the fact that I could just open the file and change it uh, really lowered the barrier to entry. So when we think about software freedom, let's not just think about it in terms of licensing. Let's also consider practical freedoms, how to make the freedom to study and modify the software available to more users or even non-programmers. So that doesn't mean writing all your software in a scripting language, but you know, I mean, it could help, but it does mean being mindful uh, of, of what you're doing. So developing the maybe use some proper abstractions so that you don't have to reason about the entirety of the program, document the design and philosophy of your program, how it works. Just try to think of ways to empower as many users as you can. And don't get, this is a skill that, that, that takes time. Uh, and and some, some people, you know, never, never quite get there. I mean, I, again, I develop software for a living. I have to work with teams of people. It can be hard. 
What's important though, is that you're just always thinking of, of those practical freedoms for the user and in keeping free software, at, at, software freedom at the heart of what you do. So if we go back to my story, one of the most notorious problems users have when switching to GNU and Linux is the issue of wireless drivers. Not just wireless drivers, there's also video and such, but I only have so much time here to talk. So I'm gonna focus on wireless. So back in the day, um, I had to use a tool called NDIS Wrapper, which was free software that, had, that could load Windows XP drivers on GNU and Linux for my wireless card. But the drivers for, for Windows were, were non-free. Nowadays, the situation seems much better in that if you, uh, you know, just, just use a bootable CD for a popular GNU and Linux distro, you may find your hardware just works. But there's a catch because that's usually because the kernel Linux comes with a bunch of binary blobs, uh, which is a term we, we give to these opaque and non-free objects within them. There is a Linux Libre, Libre project, which strips those blobs to actually provide a fully free kernel, but then users may find that certain software doesn't work. So generally the recommendation for Wi-Fi on a Linux-based system is to use uh, a card or a dongle like this one, um, that's based on the Atheros chipset. And so in one sense, our, our situation has improved drastically from what it was 15 years ago. You know, I can carry this around and plug it in or, or, or get one that, you know, my laptop has, a, has one that's made to be used uh, inside it instead of a USB dongle sticking out. But that's if you have money. And so we have a problem. Uh, so on one hand, it's better, but on the other hand, what about the people who can't afford to buy this. I, I forget what I paid uh, for this. It, it might have been around $40. Or what about the people who want to repurpose old, old hardware? So e-waste, for example, is, is something people consider to be a major ethical issue. In those cases, they may have systems that are fully free with the exception of, of the wireless drivers. So let's think about something, uh, let's think about someone who, who's just starting to dip their toe into uh, GNU and Linux or free software. They want to use hardware they already have, right? Now purchase something else just to give it a try. But if they use a distribution that we recommend, so me as an activist or the FSF on their list of endorsed distributions, then their hardware may not work. So what do we tell them? And I'm not gonna answer that right now. I, I want you to sit on that one too. We're starting to you know, develop a theme here. Uh, we'll, we'll be coming back to it. So, the next step for me was trying to move off of Windows. So uh, around this time, I had a desktop that I built uh, in, in addition to my laptop, and I was dual booting uh, Windows and GNU and Linux. So for those who don't know, dual booting means that when I start my system, I was presented with a menu, uh, and I could choose whether to boot into Windows or boot into GNU and Linux. And why would I do that after having a, a taste of the freedom? Why would I still want to go into Windows? And the simple answer is that old habits die hard. It takes time to upend the computing you've done for so long uh, and lear learning new ways to do things. This is an incremental process. But the biggest thing that kept me booting into Windows at that time, so this is 12, 13, 14, somewhere in there years ago, 15, anyway, uh, it was a popular MMO. And I'm not gonna name it, but I was quite addicted to it at the time. Games are influential. I'm not even a gamer, and I've already mentioned games twice so far. Frozen Bubble for uh, making me aware of software freedom, and this MMO for keeping me on Windows. And here's the third one. 
when I first started programming 20 years ago. It's because of another game I played, Laser Tank, which had a level editor, and I wanted to break outside of it. I wanted to be able to do more than what that level editor allowed me to do. So I want to stay on, on this topic of games for, for just a little bit because it's an important one. There's a number of aspects uh, to games beyond just addiction that make it a little bit different from other software. <clears throat> games are more than just software. They're also art. And with that, there's some additional complexities. It may be challenging to find a free replacement for a game because of surrounding trademarks. For example, my kids sometimes want to play games because they contain characters that they recognize from, from shows or movies. And it's not that it's impossible to make free software to replicate those games. It absolutely is, and there are plenty of examples. But they're not necessarily of practical use to my children if the reason they want to play it are those characters. And then to further complicate things, many AAA titles have budgets in the tens or even hundreds of millions of dollars, and it seem to be more like interactive movies. Now that's something the free software community is not currently well positioned to counter. And it's not that we can't, but to counter such a massive undertaking, we need many more people who believe in our ideals and are willing to work toward it. And then there's something else. Games are something that people gather around and enjoy together. They can be ingrained in culture, whether it be culture at large or, or smaller groups. Getting rid of a game or replicating it with something free may also mean challenging all of your friends to also play it. So we have this problem with social networks too. You know, what, what good is a social network that none of your peers use? I avoid a lot of these problems by breaking social norms or, or simply not associating with certain people. And I'm okay with doing this, but many people aren't or can't. I used the vegan metaphor previously, but the metaphor is a little shallow. So consider a party. So if you're a vegan and, and they're serving meat, then you could still participate in the party, but, but just not eat that meal or bring your own, which is kind of like what I do with free, free software. But with certain games like MMOs or popular social networks, the software isn't just a component of a social event. It is the social event. It's the means of communication. There's no abstaining from or, or substituting while also communicating. Severing non-free software in such cases may mean severing social ties unless there happens to be free software that is compatible. And sometimes there is, but oftentimes there isn't. And while I've done that, and I'm okay with it, that's me. We can't demand or expect that of others. We need to work with people to adopt replacements to help them to help move their community to another platform that respects their freedom so that then they can all enjoy freedom together. Freedom shouldn't have to mean isolation from one's peers just because they don't hold the same ideals, right? Not to mention that that just creates echo chambers and, and also then removes our voice from that community or the ability for, for that person to advocate. It perpetuates or even possibly worsens that divide. However, uh, Despite my uh, simply avoiding certain situations, there are certain things that I cannot escape from and, and that I have no choice but to, to confront head on. Dramatic pause for the water, I suppose. Let's take, uh, let's take schools, for example. There was a talk earlier uh, today on, um, on, on the problem of non-free software in schools. 
that I recommend you take a look at. But let's say you live in a school district where students use non-free software or services, which nowadays is very likely, more likely than not. So first, there's, there's something you have to understand. The school has already invested money, uh, if it's a public school, taxpayer money, into the hardware, the services, the training of staff and students. They've put data into the platform. And given all of that, one person, like me, voicing their dissent, isn't going to change that. It's too expensive. In my case, I arrived too late to my district to voice any input on that process. I did meet with assistant superintendents of the district to voice my concerns. But again, I'm just one person. Why are my ideals more important than the opinions of others? But what if it were different? What if there were dozens of parents or more? Could have possibly prevented this before it happened. There would have been a louder voice. They don't have to even subscribe fully to our ideals. They just need to know enough to advocate for them, to care, like my wife did in her position. And they may not necessarily care about freedom for themselves, but maybe they'll care about it for their children. Kind of like how we you know, will eat whatever we want, but we want our kids to eat healthy because that's what's good for them. But how do we get those parents through advocacy? But what advice do we offer to those parents who are in that situation today? Do we just say, don't let your child use non-free software? I put the social and emotional well-being of my children above my ideals of software freedom. And I suspect that most, if not all, of parents do the same. But by forcing your child to participate in your activism when they're too young to understand is not looking out for their best interests. Now, if they're old enough to understand and want to do so on their own, that's great. Encourage that and, and, and have, them, have them do so. But if they're young, like mine, then having them do things differently in class than the other kids is just gonna increase social anxiety, decrease their learning, possibly open them up to ridicule. It's one thing to ask myself to be strong in that situation. It's another thing to ask my child to be. So we find ourselves in this situation that unless we can connect with parents and offer them better guidance than simply don't use non-free software, they're gonna just see us as extremists and not engage. And the situation will simply perpetuate. And the reason this is so important is because this is one of the core ways that non-free software continues through the generations. These companies get a stronghold within schools, knowing that if they teach kids how, how to use this software and, and indoctrinate them in it, they're going to be using that outside of school as well. I mentioned previously, people don't like change. So, so odds are quite high. And back in the day, it was, it was Microsoft and Sun. Today, it's, it's more like Google. Uh, that's what they're going to use going forward. And then this simply compounds over and over. Uh, there, there was a comment in IRC actually for one of the previous talks saying that even some of the parents were uh, considered uh, positive for, for things like Microsoft and, and Google's products to be taught in school because that's what's used in real life. And yes, that's true, but we can change that. Imagine though, if we taught freedom in school, sharing. Imagine the impact that might have on our activism and advocacy. The job would be done for us by professional educators who know and who know how best to educate and who work within these communities, as I was mentioned before, not just some voice on, on the screen like me who can't necessarily relate to your position. Now there's a question 
I want to consider carefully because it's it's loaded uh, and uh, it's something a lot of people ask themselves. Am I a bad person for using non-free software? Well, why, why is non-free software bad? Is it the program itself? Well, when you liberate a program, when you make it free, that code does not have to change. So clearly the program itself isn't, isn't the problem. What changes is the license. Copyright, and in some cases patents and, and trademarks, take away freedoms that we would otherwise have. But a free software license grants those freedoms back. From whom though? Who, who is relinquishing that power? The copyright holder or the patent or, or the trademark holder. They are the ones that otherwise can tell, tell us what we can and cannot do. They exercise their rights over us as an instrument of power. That is why it's bad. The power they have over us when we, when we use non-free software. So users of non-free software aren't bad people, but we do sometimes describe them as victims. Now, we have to be careful though in, in the terminology that, that we use because people who don't hold ideals as strongly as we do may not like being called victims because if they're putting themselves in the situation that they're in, if they want to be using software or services that they're using, uh, I mean, would you, would you want to be called a victim in that, play, in that case? So it, it, it kind of implies that they have poor judgment. It, it may offend them. So some people don't want to be labeled victims or bad people. And that's really about using judgment. Make sure you adjust your terminology for your particular situation. We have a lot of terminology that, that we think works well for us because it really invokes emotion and really describes how we feel about non-free software. But it can be off-putting to those who aren't quite there yet. They may agree with you eventually, but they need some time. <clears throat> Throughout this talk, there's been a common theme, and, and I've said I'd revisit certain things. So we have these ideals, and there are challenges toward meeting them. And sometimes guidance on these ideals can be hard to come by until you reach a certain point, because us as activists, or the Free Software Foundation, or GNU, as entities that, that want to instill these ideals in their purest form, don't want to risk guiding users toward something that is non-free. This necessarily means that in, in the process of, uh, of adopting free software, that unless you find yourself in a rather remarkable position, you're going to find yourself using non-free software as you try to figure out how to do without, despite being ideologically opposed to it. And when this gets tough, it's tempting to justify your use of non-free software in a particular case by reframing the issue or possibly diluting your ideals by saying that <clears throat> certain parts uh, of these free software ideals aren't important after all. Please never dilute your ideals, never. Don't make excuses when you don't meet them, own up to it. Otherwise you risk becoming complacent and then you may stagnate in your progress. I made this mistake when I was starting out. Uh, in the case of video drivers, for example, I. I decided because I wanted to use that particular video card that it didn't matter that the drivers were non-free. And because of that, for a while, I stagnated in my growth as, as a free software user. Um, I wasn't an activist back then, but uh, that, that, you know, that could have uh, preempted that as well. So instead, set your goals high, knowing that you're going to fail to meet them for quite some time, because 
you probably are. The odds are against you. The world is currently against you. you know, keep your goals strong, though. This is what organizations like the FSF and GNU are good for. They don't leave any question as to where those ideals stand. They are unwavering. And then when you do make progress toward your goals, be proud of the progress you've made, however much or however little, and be happy with the freedom that you have gained. Struggling with my mouse a little bit here. Sorry about that. I mentioned that um, the, you know, the world's against you. And in, in, in one way it's true, but in another, maybe, maybe I shouldn't phrase it like this, that, because I used to look at everyone embracing non-free software in the world with, with anger and with cynicism. But in reality, it's just that most people don't know about these issues or understand why they're important or, or should be adopted. When you see schools embracing non-free software and services or your employer, or advertisements for non-free software, or your friends or family members using a proprietary program, rather than getting angry, take it as a call to action. Help them to understand. Because if you immediately jump in and, and, and use terminology that's too strong, it's going to be off-putting and, and you risk losing them as an audience. Not all of us may find it within ourselves to be as free as, say, someone like Richard Stallman. We all lead different lives under different circumstances. But what we should all strive to do is to help one another in the spirit of freedom, not just for ourselves, but for everyone. But why do we have trouble with our freedoms? Is it because it's impractical? Well, impracticality is a self-fulfilling prophecy, not at the level of an individual, but as a society as a whole. All these issues that I brought up here are of humanity's own making. Non-free software is not a law of nature. Copyright is not a law of nature. It's non-free because we allow it to be so. And it doesn't have to stay that way. I certainly hope it doesn't. If enough of us speak out, we can change that over time. The smallest steps toward freedom add up. We don't all need to be purists. We all need to just be aware and care. And since my job Primarily now as, as a dad, I could not help but to uh, add a Dr. Seuss quote in here from Lorax, which is, unless someone like you cares a whole awful lot, nothing is going to get better. It's not. There are a lot of things that I wanted to include in this talk uh, that I had to get rid of for time. And rather than trying to just shove as much in as possible, uh, I figured it, it might be better to uh, let some of the attendees guide the conversation a little bit. So. If you have any questions, uh, yeah, please feel free. Otherwise, uh, here are some topics I, I could rant on about otherwise. But uh, otherwise, thank you. Thanks a lot, Mike. Great talk. Um, the IRC, in the IRC channel, people really enjoyed this one. Thanks a lot for this. Um, questions. So one of the first comments was, um, the fact that one must totally change their life to live in freedom is definitely a big problem. We can't people expect to, to totally change their behavior by seeing polymer. Do you want to comment on this one? Yes. Uh, the, the simple answer is no. We can't expect people to change their lives. And the reason is because, <clears throat> and this is something I struggled with for a long time, because 
free software is so important to me. When I first discovered it, I thought everybody must must think this way. Everybody must want this. I remember reading a thread on, on Reddit uh, well over a decade ago with people railing on free software and, and, and what they perceived as the problems with it. And I, 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 I couldn't even comprehend it. I, I did not understand how everybody couldn't uh, agree with these ideals. And in, in doing so, I, I think I've uh, limited, I, I've been a very ineffective activist in certain ways for all of this time. Because, yeah, you, having users change their lives, it's, you will occasionally get the person who does agree with, with our ideals as much as we do. And a lot of you are you know, probably here right now in this conference. But the majority of the population won't. Or maybe eventually they will, but it, it's going to take time to come around. Or maybe they secretly do, but there's too much peer pressure. It's too impractical for them to because they have other ideals or other things in their life that they hold more important than free software. So what we have to do is we, we need enough people that care about particular issues to write free replacements that are suitable for those who don't have the ideals as strong as we do. And you know, in, in certain ways that you know, pro uh, projects like Mastodon can help serve as uh, Twitter replacements, PeerTube and, and such. A lot of these problems that, that try to tackle social issues it, it's not necessarily the lack of technology in, in those cases. People don't adopt them, again, because that's not where their communities are. Um, so no, I, I, we can't expect that to happen, um, but the, and it's an unfortunate reality that we're in right now and, and that, that has to change. Yeah, yeah. Actually, on, in parallel, the IRC is getting quite active now on this question and also related questions um, such as, where was it? Um, advice on how to approach people who are who have very different ideas and are in a different position and one comment was um, perhaps the importance of empathy and advocacy is the primary message here and yeah i think this is a big good point yeah i i agree uh, and again not to so i want to be clear i'm not railing i don't want to rail against the fsf or richard stallman or or any of the people that i admire um very dearly they have their place as again this lighthouse something that we all need to look toward but that doesn't mean that their uh, example is effective in all cases we need people again in in these that are effective at communicating to different types of people and certainly there are situations where uh, you you need to sit down with someone understand their concerns have a deep conversation with them relate to them and that might mean putting some of your ideals on the back burner because you might have to make a recommendation to them that you you would not make to yourself but that moves them ever closer to, you know, slightly closer to freedom. And then you can just keep building upon that, you know, take them by the hand, support them, and then maybe eventually they'll get there. But if you don't do that, they're, they're just going to shut you down completely right off the bat. And you, then you get nowhere. Agreed. Yeah. Thanks. Different question uh, from Yastif. Do you block discourse software, discourse forum software too? 23% of that are written in JavaScript. I'm sorry, what was the beginning of the question? If you block discourse forum software. Yeah, so so for so just JavaScript in general, should I should I speak to that? Um, a lot of the web, yes, today requires 
uh, JavaScript to function either properly or at all. And JavaScript is non, yeah, most of the JavaScript served is, is non-free. Uh, it's, so I gave a talk on this 2016, if you're interested in it, because we're, we're probably running tight on time. But uh, when you visit a web page, you're, you're automatically downloading and executing these, these non-free programs on your computer. And the problem is your average user can't, I mean, let's say we give them LibreJS or something. What's going to happen is the web breaks for them. And, you know, just handing them that and, and telling them good luck is, is not really a, a viable option. They're not going to stick with that. If they consider freedom to be very important, then they might end up suffering and, and deciding that they can't use the web and, and, and that's that. And I hope we can, we can improve upon that. But improving upon the situation as a whole so that the average user can continue to use the web in freedom requires a massive cultural shift for all these organizations that are writing the non-free software to begin with. It's not as simple as advocating at an individual level. Agreed, yeah, yeah. Uh, which question to choose next? Um, maybe one. Do you foresee it's becoming more difficult to make or encourage the switch to full freedom, given that there are so many X200s or Galaxy S2s left in the world? Are you optimistic about any fully free computing or mobile phone project? I am. Uh, so, so first of all, uh, again, I have an X200. I, I love it it's because it's good for, for what I do. But actually, even in this talk, I had to reduce the video quality because it's not suitable for, for doing the transcoding and stuff expected of, of modern. It can't keep up with my webcam. So this is not suitable for, for everybody. Um, we need modern hardware. And I, I am optimistic for the progress being made uh, for, for certain companies. Um, the, you know, op what people call open hardware, I prefer to be called free hardware, so we have a focus on freedom. You know, that, that didn't used to be a concern of, you know, a focus for the Free Software Foundation and such because it, at the time, wasn't practical. Now people are actually coming up with free hardware designs and such and systems designed to work with free software. For example, Purism has gotten a number of uh, respect to freedom um, certifications from the FSF. And I also, I love that the FSF came up with that concept. When I'm looking for new hardware, that's where I look first with the caveat that certain things are not adequate for your average user. So, um, and as far as phones go, I'm, I'm high, I'm optimistic for the, for the Librem 5, which has received a, uh, the FSF's, uh, endorsement. Um, there are other projects as well. I know there's like, there's the Pi phone, Pine phone and such, but I don't think they're fully somebody but I, I see I'm hesitant to speak on certain things because I don't want to say something incorrect um, so so somebody please correct me if that is not true um, so I'm hopeful but I think that the current you know again recommending x200s and galaxy s3s to everyone is, is not the way to go yeah right right thanks um, I also had a question so you talk a lot or I do also these gradual changes towards free software, but there are huge steps I didn't dare to take yet. So for example, um, ditching Microsoft Office at work um, or going to a full Libre uh, mobile OS. Do you have any advice on, on how to tackle such things, these big steps? So for, if it's a, just a matter of, of you, Office can largely be replaced by something like LibreOffice. I um, I find that under so 
the employers using non-free software, that's, that's a talk in its own. But as an example, my employer does use non-free software in certain cases. And I advocate for, for using free software when I can. Uh, but um, at, you know, as an employee, I'm, I'm acting on behalf of my employer. If they choose to use non-free software, that's, you know, that's, they're losing out on their freedoms. Um, it isn't my personal computing, but in doing so, I have, uh, so let, you know, for example, for office. So I try to do all of my work at my employer within a virtual machine um, running GNU and Linux using exclusively free software. And LibreOffice is one of the things that I, that I do run. I open these um, fairly exotic documents for, from uh, a lot of the, for, for business requirements and all these things, and they function just fine. Now, I'm sure there are features that, that are missing, but for the most part, LibreOffice is something that does actually work pretty well day to day. I'm sure if you talk to somebody who's, say, an expert in Excel or something and uses all these advanced features, maybe there, there are certain things that, that don't work. Um, but I, I think that you could uh, I play with making that step to start using LibreOffice um, and then maybe fall back to Office if it isn't working for you and just keep trying to use it more and more and figure out what are those features that don't work and what can you live without and, and work toward getting uh, toward freedom. Thanks. That makes sense. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so I think I've brought up all the relevant questions. If I forgot any, please tell me in IRC. Um, I think we should also wrap up the call. We are five minutes over time uh, oh, okay. <laughs> already. <laughs> um, yeah, so thanks a lot, everybody, for joining. Um, thanks a lot, Mike, for the great presentation. It was awesome to listen to you. Thank um, you. And yeah, talk to you soon. Right. Bye -bye. Thank you, everybody. Thank you, everyone, for hearing me out on some uncomfortable, uncomfortable topics. <laughs> <laughs>